Welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. We've got an NIA boys here, Jack Butcher from Visualize Value. Trunk fan, no longer a lead writer at The Hustle. He's going to tell us a little bit more about that today. Um, but me, Master Flex himself, and I'm Bilal Zaidi from Asani, Oaxaca in Mexico. Uh, you'll see another, what is this, like the third background in three weeks, I think, boys? Well, so. Bilal, can you, give, uh, can you give the listeners a quick, uh, a quick rundown of the trip so far? Highs, oh, lows? Man. Uh, any street food that's hit not too well? Oh yeah, that every week is definitely. I'm definitely on edge. I've taken some medicine <laughs> a couple times that like you're only allowed to have in Mexico. I only found that re- found out recently. But no, man, it's been an amazing trip. I've been here three, four weeks. I'm, I've been working most of it, and then this week I'm actually taking off. A part of this is the only work I'm doing this week. If it discounts as work, um, yeah, man, it's been amazing. Mexico City was really cool, amazing city. If anyone hasn't been or been thinking about going, you should check it out. And now in Oaxaca, I've just been there a couple of days, so I haven't done too much. But I'm going to be doing the whole mezcal trip, going checking out the fields and uh, learning about Oaxacan cooking and doing some historical stuff. So. It's, it's been fun, man. But yeah, I don't, let's get straight into it, boys. So hold on, crazy. before we get straight go into on, it, on, I want to on. ask you one question. <laughs> go on. With any type of trip like this, right, um, where street food may or may not be involved, you know, I lived in Vietnam for five years. You guys have traveled widely to different regions of the world. Can you walk us through the street food calculations as you're rolling up to a spot and being like, yo, that looks delicious. However... Yeah. There is a non-zero chance this could take me out for the rest of the day. Yeah, not that rest of the <laughs> that day, is like, rest of the trip. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. Last time so I talk came us through here, that. I've been here three, four times, and every single time I've had some sort of stomach issue. Right. And this is the first time, fingers crossed, I haven't thrown up yet. But okay. yeah, definitely on my tiptoes a little bit, just in case. So yeah, I mean, the calculation is always... If it looks too good to be true, I probably need to. Uh, <laughs> I need to stick to stick to the restaurant and cook stuff. So, uh, well, no, man, I it's, got it's, to, it's amazing. I got two Asia jokes for you about that. About if it looks too good to be true. Go so number one is this: the good thing about Vietnam is this: street food of, uh, often involves broth, like the pho broth or like the yeah. you know the central Vietnamese type of broth. You know if that broth is boiling, you're good to go. <laughs> they killed you know all the what I mean? Gems, yeah. <laughs> so there's a really famous uh, broth spot in uh, it's called Pham Lao, which is the street, uh, the backpacker area of Ho Chi Minh City. And uh, the legend is that this 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 giant like thing, the vat of broth, has been going on the heat for 30 straight years. So like, there's still the Genesis broth. That's insane. From like 30 that. years ago, within it, is that right? Real? Yeah. I, I buy because like I've seen, I know they're 24 hours and I've never seen like, uh, the heating element, which is just, it's a, it's cool and fire ever turned off. So like, would it be shocking if that thing's been on for 30 years? Like not even remotely. And then, like I said, zero risk, dude, you want the safest street food in the world. Eat some boiling hot broth. <laughs> uh, Man, the other I one say, yo, trying actually, I did eat, there's a place called Puyo in uh, Mexico City it's like okay. a fancy restaurant like tasting menu vibe it's like on chef's table but they have this seven year old mole or I don't even oh, know if I'm saying that's a uh, that's some and they, star uh, guy right probably yeah I, I don't yeah. even know bro I'm pretty bad with that stuff okay. but yeah it was, it was amazing but they have seven year old mole so it's they don't also turn it off basically or they, <laughs> they're cooking it for seven well, years well that, that's why insane. you're eating that all day last thing yeah. I'll say about uh, 
traveling in different regions of the world. I had a buddy that I, I got married in the Philippines in Boracay Islands. And uh, I just told my buddies, I'm like, listen, guys, just, just don't drink the tap water. Just don't risk it. There's bottled water everywhere. So my buddy comes to the, or, or call my buddy calls into the hotel the day of the wedding. He's like, God, oh man, I got a really bad stomach pains. I'm like, dude, did you drink the water? He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, what did you eat? He's like, nothing, like fried food. I'm like, he's like, oh yeah, but uh, during the shower, I was drinking the shower water while I was That's ridiculous, head. bro. I'm like, yeah, that's what it is, bro. That's what it is. That will do it, man. That, All right, even sorry, the ice. Man. We'll we'll get to meme in a week now, but yeah. um, let's bring it up here. So let's. This is really setting the the scene for the episode. Jack, let's kick it over to you, mate. Here is the meme of the week. I think you or Trunk submitted this. Okay, Jack, describe this to our listeners. All right, I'll try to give the visual rundown. So this is, I'm not sure if we featured a Kenneth Dredd meme on here yet, but you've got to follow Kenneth Dredd if you're not already. Um, the caption is, Nickel is back. And the image <laughs> is a still from the Nickelback video photograph where I've, <laughs> the iconic Chad Kroger with the fist in the frame and the nickel chart has been superimposed on the photograph he's holding up with a parabolic vertical line on the very right parabolic. hand side of the what image. A great description. It was an incredible description. Uh, let me add the one uh, kicker on the end. It was a short squeeze for the ages is what happened to mm. the price of nickel. So I'm going to read out this text that Jack sent us. Uh, blah, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk through the text and I can, uh, I'd love to get your eyes reaction on the, the absurdity of it. Uh, I believe somebody lost $12 billion shorting nickel, but we'll actually explain why they were short nickel. It was a, a Chinese uh, nickel magnet, like, uh, you know, this billionaire Chinese nickel guy. Uh, his name actually, ironic enough, is uh, the big shot. That was his nickname. But uh, essentially what happened was nickel went from 20,000 per ton to 100,000 per ton in one day. This was a result of a short squeeze. We will explain what that is shortly. But uh, from this LinkedIn article that Jack sent, shockingly informative LinkedIn article, or just even a post, it was a 30 standard deviation move. As a point of comparison, the, uh, the famous 1987 uh, Monday crash was 21 standard deviations. And uh, this is the craziest stat. A 12 Standard deviation move should only happen two every 10,000 years. So this That's is a insane. 30 times a standard deviation wow. move. Insane. So, so Trung, let, to set the scene, the reason that was meme of the week and why you're talking about this is because of, obviously last week we spoke about Russia and Ukraine. That's an ongoing situation. Yeah. Um, but what we're going to cover today, a couple things. We're going to talk about oil and gas prices hitting record highs uh, yep. That's obviously something everyone's probably been reading about, but we're going to break that down a little bit. Obviously, Russia is a big player in that world, but we're going to talk a little bit more about beyond oil because everything is up. It's not just oil. Uh, all commodities. Uh, because, all commodities. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll, uh, I'll have, two, I have two tweets here that uh, we've all pulled up, so I'll share the screen on those just to speak about uh, Jack. Actually, Jack's been on fire sharing us this good content. But uh, here we go. We've got the portion of a screen. And then I'll share this bad boy. You guys seen this for our listeners. I'll tell you what we're, do you guys see this? Yeah. Okay. So here's a tweet that Jack shared with us. It, it gives an idea of what's going on with not just oil and gas. It's happening across all commodities because 
uh, this tweet goes, you know, every every person in the world or this individual says every moron says that Russia is irrelevant. It's only 2% of global GDP, right? Like we've heard that sentiment is like, why are we going to go to nuclear war over this country, which actually isn't that big of an economic player? So yes, on dollar terms, they are not in the same realm as the United States or China, right? Or as but, he describes, measured with monkey money, it is. Yeah, it's, it's just so, yeah that's fair, right? We, as we've discussed on non-investment advice, fiat is not, you know, there's some, the foundation of fiat is a little bit questionable. So measured in real assets, this is Russia's holdings. All right, so listeners and viewers, here we go. 11% of global oil supply. 17% of natural gas supply, 11% of global, I don't know what PM stands for, uh, precious metals, uh, 11% of global wheat production, and 10% of industrial metals. But wait, we're not done yet. So that's just Russia. Now we have to remember that the country that they so brutally invaded and that over the past 10 days has courageously fought back against the Russian invaders, Ukraine is also known as the breadbasket of the world, right? That's where the, the farming is massive. So here's a tweet. Okay. Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia account for 35% of potash. That is for fertilizer. Urea, 15%. That's also fertilizer. 25% of wheat, 24% of uh, barley, 13% of corn. That is all offline now. So... We're talking about a, a, a quarter of like wheat and corn in the world. And then the stat that I had from Bloomberg, who we will announce later, is uh, partnered with Trunk Fan Inc. Now we're playing. Uh, a 10% of global calories come from Russia. And Those numbers are just unfathomable, man. Unfathomable. Insane. So like, you know... We're gonna. It's it's gonna hit literally everyone, and we actually we should we are gonna tick off every one of these things because I'm sure people will be curious about what each individual thing is. And I mean, have you guys seen the higher gas prices yet? Like day to day. Yeah, Jack I mean, it's probably gone up. <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah. gone up. Maybe it was around before this stuff kicked off. It's probably hovering around three bucks a gallon where I am. Yeah. And now it's up. 33 percent is that for 417 today right. which yeah. is uh tuesday we're recording was the high and, and and biden just announced that they're no longer importing russian oil right so and putin announced sorry trung that yeah, they're not exporting anything this year did okay. you see that no i did not see that oh my goodness so that, that's so russia for context is five percent of global oil production so this is so now we're moving from gas prices which jack says about four dollars with, with four a gallon so yeah, we're hearing that might go up. To, yeah, up we, to that, that might go up to six, uh, which is unheard of. Uh, but the the oil per barrel, which is a number that every that ones are people are familiar with, right? Is like that was the number that went to negative thirty whatever in during the early days of the pandemic. So the barrel numbers, we're talking about one forty one fifty now. That's about tripled in the past couple of months. Uh, and the statistic here is, uh, I think it's from Goldman Sachs, is for every $20 gain in in the price of crude. Yeah, exactly. That's so here's a, 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 for the people watching, you can see the, the chart. The jump. Yeah, yeah, so it went from about 60 at the end of last year. to It's doubled. It's doubled in basically three months. And that's what happens if we when just you just go longer, you can see the five-year chart. You can see it went negative. Yeah, here. that crazy dip. 2020. So exactly. So we're looking at this chart, but also every $20 uh, uh, gain 
in absolute dollars uh, is a is 0.3% GDP hit. So just think about that. The US economy is whatever, $20 billion. So 0.3% is 10, we're talking like 50 to $100 billion hit for $20 gas, like a negative like to the economy. So this so, is, so Trump, crazy. I mean, just to, to break that down a bit more, um, obviously oil is central to everything, right? Like yeah. it's energy. So what are the kind of like second and third order effects or something like this? I mean, the, the oil refining industry, like everyday plastics, chemicals, uh, pharmaceuticals, these are all like offsets from just traditional oil, right? So you take oil, you can split it into gasoline, you take bits of it, you throw it into a plastics production. So, I mean, the downstream effects are going to be massive. Like, that's just, it, it, it's our entire economy. That's why when people ever say, it's like, you know, when there's criticism of the oil economy, it's just like, yeah, we're, we're wedded to it, right? It's like, we're trying so hard to go electric and not depend on oil because it is dirty, it's hard to get out of the ground and it has a finite supply. But there's just no question. And we're seeing uh, over the past couple of weeks, like how critical it is to the day-to-day uh, uh, existence of everyone. And then, I mean, that's just the oil stuff. I, I'd like to talk about uh, more on the wheat stuff because it is actually wild what's going on with the wheat. So the wheat numbers we talked about, that's a quarter of uh, production is from Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. So the, the issue with wheat is this is, I mean, we have a pretty varied diet in the West, right? But like wheat, uh, you guys probably know this from the Middle East, it's like a wheat, first of all, the Egyptian government subsidizes wheat for their citizens because of how big of a staple it is for their daily lives. And historically, wheat shortages or a shortage of that as a source of calorie has led to major, major citizen uprisings, right? So the Arab Spring was in part due to the fact that uh, the wheat prices went up or the wheat supply was unable to get to the regular citizens. If you want to go back, the French Revolution uh, was kind of triggered a lot of causes, but one of them was a shortage of food, uh, bread being one of them. So, I mean, wheat is a massive issue. And so the price of wheat has gone up 50% in the last two weeks. So we're not even going to know when this effect is going to trickle through, right? It's like the, the expert that was, that I read this article about in Bloomberg said, even if we got everything back on today, you're talking the rest of 2022 is effed, right? In terms of the supply train, in terms of uh, people uh, getting what they need and how long it takes to prepare for uh, these crops in advance. So like 2022 might be a wash right now in terms of, like wheat production. And this comes on top of the fact that we had to deal with this global pandemic, right? And the supply chain stress is there. So it, it, it could be it could be nasty, man. Like the last thing I'll say is this, wheat, corn, and rice are responsible for 40% of all calories in the entire world that are consumed. So think about, I mean, sadly, there's going to be like mass starvation in some places, uh, all as a, as a uh, outbreak and like, you know, second tertiary effects of this uh, war crazy it's terrible man um so yeah and just to, to was there anything else more on the commodity stuff or was that yeah actually I, I, the nickel stuff is fascinating yeah, so let's, let's talk a bit up. about that because that's also i mean the nickel the short squeeze you're talking about yeah i'll, I'll show the we can pull up the uh i mean jack mentioned the uh the nickel back but there it is right there's that line in all of its glory unbelievable right so I mean, I can literally walk through quickly like uh, how this short squeeze happened. So if you're, a, if you're a commodity producer, let's say you're making nickel or oil, uh, 
you typically, you want to lock in what price, uh, the price range that you can sell your, your product to market, right? So if you're producing a commodity, if you're producing nickel, you're naturally long that asset or that commodity, right? Like you're selling it to the market. So to protect yourself, you also have a lot of commodity producers also just short it in the futures markets, right? Because that way they can lock in basically the band that they think that they'll be able to trade the commodity in. I mean, if you're high risk, you're not going to do that. But if, if you're trying to run an operation, you want to know the, the fluctuation of which you will be paid, right? So a lot of, so the nickel producer, the gentleman that we talked about, the big shot, which is nickname, this Chinese uh, billionaire, um, he was massively, he held a massive short position in nickel, which is fair, right? That's his day-to-day operation. So what happened is this though, Russia was taking nickel off the market. They're, I think they're responsible for a quarter of nickel production in the world. So people just assume the price would go up, right? Supply goes down and even if demand stays the same, it's going to go up. And demand's actually increasing in general because nickel is a very large input into batteries for electric vehicles. Traditionally, it was meant uh, mostly for stainless steel. So 70% of nickel goes into stainless steel right now, but a lot of it now is as a metal for electric vehicles. So let's say you're the big shot uh, Chinese a billionaire nickel guy. You have a short position and then you realize the price is going to jump up. What happens is when the price shoots up and you have a short position, you have to continually, you're going to get margin called by the futures exchange to be like, hey, listen, there's things shooting through the roof. Like we're going to have to call, right? And so what happens is that that forces the uh, uh, the commodity maker, the big shot nickel guy to buy some more of the underlying nickel and it forces the price back up. So it's just like cycle. That's what happens with the short squeeze. And that basically happened to him, but it happened so quickly and it was so detrimental to the actual existence of uh, the big shots nickel business and other nickel uh, uh, miners that the London Metal Exchange actually stopped trading because they realized that these individuals, they would, you know, they weren't short on a speculative basis. They were short because that's the nature of running a commodities business. And they're like, if we don't give these guys a chance to kind of close these positions in like a, 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 a slow and reasonable manner, they're literally going to go out of business or they're not going to be able to run. So basically they have to stop the trading from happening. Um, but yeah, it all goes back to before trunk. Yeah. There's been like, there's been squeezes of this nature. There's a really famous. I mean, GameStop was a short squeeze. No, Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it wasn't obviously in the commodity space. There's a very famous silver squeeze, but they, the, the people involved meant to squeeze that market or try to corner it. This was more of an example of there was a massive, uh, a nickel producer, uh, in the, in the order of his daily business, the big shot individual, Literally, his name was the big shot, uh, had to be short nickel uh, just to run his operation. And then the whole Russia uh, uh, crisis happens, which takes nickel offline. So, it, you know, it, logically, it makes a lot of sense. But people had to step in because of how quickly it went. So th- that would be the nickel situation. Yeah, man. Nice. Well, thanks for summarizing that. Um, Jack, I mean, I know we talked a bit about this offline um, before we recorded about crypto and kind of like over the last few months crypto has been down from the highs i think 40 50 percent in some cases for a lot of the big ones um i i know you were following like sailor and like some of the stuff he was talking about recently is there anything to to share on like how crypto is performing today in this kind of crazy environment and 
I guess we can kind of all discuss it like the how it contrasts mm-hmm. with gold, which for a long time we've talked about it since the beginning of the show. Bitcoin, uh, the narrative has been around Bitcoin being digital gold, which in wartime or, you know, bad times often is a place where people go to as a safe haven. Um, gold has been steadily going up over the last few months, yeah. I, I believe. Um, B- Bitcoin specifically in that time period hasn't necessarily you know, been doing what a lot of people thought it might do. Uh, yeah. Any opinion from you guys on what's going on on the crypto side? The how much bigger is is gold and Bitcoin twenty times or something, right? I think it's a ten billion I think to it's one billion. Ten to one billion, yeah. So ten x. Yeah. Trillion. Or billion. Ten trillion. Yeah, yeah. Trillion. Ten trillion market cap of gold or gold available versus one trillion above for Bitcoin. I think um, my uninformed answer would be like the the lindiness of a gold is like just a little bit more reassuring in a time like this, most likely. And like the institutions that are moving like real size are like already in those markets. So I think there's like people taking huge amounts of capital off the table in some areas and like reallocating them to gold. So I think like crypto markets aren't really a good read on um, like the entire psychology of the market for that reason as well just because of the imbalance in like volume um that'd be my initial thought and also like how early it is in the same like in the same breath there's it just feels like so aggressively volatile and liquid and all of the behavior associated with crypto is like the percentage of people that are like allocating over a 20, 30, 40, 50 year time frame is so tiny that it feels like the panic is even like it's even more um, susceptible yeah. to yeah. panic than these other assets that are like, you know, a 200 year hedge. But again, if you zoom out and you're not allocated 100% to something like that, it's still like it's still performed pretty reasonably over the course of the last 10 years right so i think anything anything that you're trying to get a read on today is just i mean none of us are going to be able to predict what happens on like us three talking about it and some people will get it right as a as a as a matter of just like you know throwing a hundred darts but the real test of it won't be it's not today right it's in 10 50 100 years yeah um yeah, I think I'm honestly sense. surprised on some of the other like. Uh, what is Bitcoin right now? I've, I think it's 38. I've made, a, made a habit of stop stop looking. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the the point of silver yeah, is if you look if you look at a uh, Bitcoin over any four year period span, it's been up. But I mean, like that's obviously a very very small window, whereas yeah. gold uh, to uh, Jack's point has had that uh, two thousand uh, year history. But even gold, right? It's like. I mean, the performance of gold, as we've alluded to, and anybody here listens uh, versus the, the BTC crowd. Again, we're talking like 13 years of information here. Gold has not done very much, right, in the past uh, decade in, in very trying times yeah, yeah. in the face of incredible That's U.S. True. money printing. Um, I think the other thing that uh, was interesting about kind of the transitions was, uh, and it kind of involves gold, was Jack sent us another one. Jack, you've been on fire on these these Twitter men. Jack's Twitter consumptions have been outrageous. Um, but it was it was the idea of uh, 
that out of this conflict, the Chinese renminbi is going to be uh, in a way better position than the U.S. dollar. The reason being uh, by uh, we discussed it last week, but by the Western nations, the G7 nations kind of freezing Russia's uh, reserves is kind of like brought into question the value of having these kind of Western reserves, whereas Russia, what does Russia have? And we talked about it with that earlier tweet, like, you know, in funny money, Russia's economy is not great, but in real stuff, commodities, wheat, precious metals, oil, natural gas, superpower, right? And effectively, they're going to be a Chinese client state after this war is a perception for a lot of people because they're going to be heavily weakened. They've been ostracized by the West. So China is the on par with America right now in terms of uh, the size of their economy ambitions, they're just going to scoop in, take their neighbor's assets, provide them with the financial lifeline. And now the renminbi is going to be backed by these commodities that Russia produces. Whereas the West is going to have all these, you know, treasuries and dollars and, and euros that as they've demonstrated in the past, since the pandemic happened, uh, can be very, uh, can be very questionable in terms of how they're backing it as a, 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 a what, what is it? It's fiat, right? They say it is because it is. Yeah, and I think we talked about this, it feels like years ago at this point, but when we did the growth value stock episode, this is like a layer beneath value stocks, right? It's, it's like energy and like the things that people eat to stay alive, which yeah. like, when you're in a period of time where markets are like exuberant and you live in a place where like you don't think twice about the raw material that goes into bringing anything into your home that you're like you get so disconnected from the actual fundamentals and like that's a layer underneath even like a, a value business's fundamentals right it's right. like the railroad is a layer above oil wheat all of those like really, really like fundamental staples. And one other thing I thought up while you were talking, Trung, is I think like the the maximalist thesis for Bitcoin is that energy and Bitcoin are so intrinsically linked. Right. So like as the world comes to realize how important energy is for like the security of a nation and the the pitch of Bitcoin ultimately being like this incentivizes smart energy production but it also like represents the amount of energy you have stored and there's a right. really like uh symbiotic relationship between energy production and the amount of bitcoin you hold as a nation so i don't know I, i'm definitely not educated on the geopolitical spectrum enough to understand this but i think all the stuff that came out about Russia supporting cryptocurrency like two, three weeks before this stuff happened. I think that was oh, accurate. It, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's some like macro play there going on where like being able to, um, you know, more closely align your, your energy production abilities with the amount of like... Um, the amount of like liquid wealth you have as a nation is very uh, is very different than how the world works today, right? No, that's I, Michael Saylor talks about it, uh, specifically, right? Shocker, Michael Saylor was the one that talked about it, but uh, he directly addresses the point you brought up, which is like I'm so happy you did because 
no idea that we're going to talk about it, but he says, and you guys have all seen it because we've all watched the money series. He's like, the problem with proof of stake versus proof of work, which is what Bitcoin is, proof of stake is what Ethereum is moving towards or, or has. I don't even know where it's at with that. But uh, is proof of work requires the electricity production, right? It requires interaction with the real world. And the point that Michael Saylor is making is this, and he touched exactly what you started with is like, it's one way is just to find uh, stranded electricity assets, right? You can bring power onto the grid that otherwise would not be able to because of the amount of money you can make mining Bitcoin uh, versus any other use case, right? So it makes it economical. The second part is this, because Bitcoin mining is a real world activity, and Michael Saylor always brings up this point. When you buy Bitcoin, the entire anybody else on that network is working for you, right? So the point being, let's say that in Northern British Columbia, we have hydropower. And then now a city in Northern British Columbia says, hey, we're going to incentivize mining of Bitcoin. And you can take any example across all over the globe, right? So what happens now is this. The mayor of that town is now working for you if you own Bitcoin, right? He is going to go uh, to... His legislator, he's going to go to the provincial legislator, the federal legislator, and make the argument for why they should get beneficial treatment for energy or tax purposes, because they're like, listen, we are providing a service. It's creating a money for the local economy. Granted, it's around Bitcoin mining, which is non-traditional, still making money. Uh, and now you have the Bitcoin miners working for you, the electricity grid working for you, the politician of that domicile working for you, right? So... It's exactly what you said, Jack, like Bitcoin and energy tied together means all these different layers of society are working together, right? Whereas proof of stake is very different. It takes away all those stacks. And I totally, it was so great that you brought that up because that literally is what the maximalist like sailor point being is like, you have to look at why energy is important, right? Yeah. And, and uh, like times like these, we... I think clumsily brought it up on the last episode is like how easy it is to get disconnected from the fundamentals of survival. Even the idea that people struggle to see the relationship between gas prices and like goods, right? It's like everything gets to you on the back of a truck that gets filled up with gas, like the ripple effects of this is not only hitting people when they go and like pull the pump out of the uh, the gas station. It's just the ripple effects of it are profound. Um, yeah. Speaking the, the, of the pump, though, I want to show you the guys this one. Oh, Sorry you brought it up, but uh, this is from Ramp. I have to say the comedic timing. Yeah. My, that that was exactly. So, <laughs> so for so for the uh, the Bilal, can you tell the listeners what you're looking at right here? Right here. Okay, it's Tiger King. At a yeah. Gas Jesus pump Christ. filling up his car. Says I'm never gonna financially recover from this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh my God, wait, so guys, I just want to say this, uh, that, that's from uh, Ramp Capital's newsletter. So our, our friend Ramp, a hilarious, one of the funniest accounts on Twitter. He, uh, this is from his email. I knew you guys would get a laugh out of that. I had to, well, as soon as Jack said, when you, if you think the only thing that's hitting your pocket is a gas pump, I'm like, I got to pull this meme out. I got one more meme for you guys, actually. Sorry to the listeners, but. Uh, we we got to make up for last week because uh, last week. Oh yeah, we were, last week was meme. Understandably, we right? Yeah, I know, no, it was uh, the right thing. Yeah, but, uh, listen, guys. Uh, in the mood to laugh, I've got one right more now. for you guys, and for the listeners, we'll try to explain it as well as Paul. Bilal, tell the listeners what you're seeing here, and uh, and why. Uh, 
So everything's expensive now, which means this meme format has gone out of control. Like, uh, Bilal, hit the listeners to what you're seeing uh, the, here. These are some classics. So uh, take me somewhere expensive. And it's this couple. You posted this, right? This was your Twitter. You, you, you tweeted this. Trump. Yeah, yeah, I tweeted this out. And this, yeah, so uh, it's this couple eating. And uh, yeah, so it's just a bunch. Of, it's the same meme template across four different places. So Backgrounds, uh, yeah. The gas station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the dairy aisle at the grocery Incredible. store. So, <laughs> the wheat farm. <laughs> Man, I got to say, though, like, dude, like, uh, I so I put up a meme about uh, the Ukrainian tractors. And, and the point of that meme was I wanted to make fun of the Russian military. Um, but uh, the internet being what it is, and obviously a little bit touchy times, somebody rose like, This is not the time. It's like, Why? Like, come on, dude. Like, someone's commenting like, that right now yeah. in this video as well. Somebody's <laughs> commenting that about this. Uh, you know, I, I understand. I totally get it. I, I think these are all just being like, we're, we're kind of making fun. We're trying to make fun of the aggressor here. Uh, but uh, this one, that meme template, hilarious. But that's all I got on commodities. <laughs> I thought uh, we had some good laughs. Uh, well, okay, um, so to bring it, but no, that was that was fun. But uh, Jack, was there anything else you were wrapping up with there? You were talking about the relationship with oil and the price of everything, which is something we talked about earlier as well. I think um, one thing I was going to ask, if either of you guys know, obviously we rattled off the stats for energy production in Russia, and as far as I know, at least in the U.S. and Canada, there's uh, like the possibility of energy independence domestically. Correct? Yes. Yeah, and I that's think not currently the case. I believe if all frackings turn on, all exports will turn off in the United States. Energy independent, and there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, we talked about this in the past, but like Canada, U.S., and Mexico. If we're talking about a world that will be split into, you know, the Balaji line, uh, crypto capital, woke capital, and then, uh, uh, and then what's the other one? Uh, communist CCP. capital. Yeah, yeah. So China, uh, basically you have China as one block, China and the surrounding nations. Uh, and then you have the internet, you have crypto, which basically is internet. Anybody that wants to not be in the other blocks, which is the U.S. and China. But then U.S. as a geographical unit with Canada and Mexico, that is I mean, that's why they've been so rich, the, the part of it, right? It's like geogra geographically, they're sealed off from the rest of the world in terms of uh, a threat. Um, uh, and then you have all these natural resources. So could Canada, US, and Mexico be energy independent as a unit? Like no question, right? There's just no question about it. Uh, so much politics is involved. But um, I think there's no where we are headed. And we talked about this uh, briefly last week on the geopolitical effects, like Germany, it realizes they can't open up that second natural gas line. It sounds like they might even shut down the first one uh, because they don't might not have a choice. So Russia, where are they going to get energy from? Well, they're <laughs> coal. They might have to turn coal back on, which is crazy. And they're going to have to uh, develop a liquid uh, natural gas uh, terminals to take imports from places like Qatar, uh, Australia, and America. Um, but you know, a third of natural gas in Europe comes from Russia. And, you know, you can assume a lot of that's going to be kaput for the rest of this year. But, um, yeah, man, absolutely wild. Wild. So I'll ask you guys this as well. And, again, we're completely not qualified to, to talk about this, but we're going to... At all, yeah. ...ponder on it anyway. Um, before this war kicked off, right, two years of COVID, pretty much we're just hitting it right now. The world had already gone through this crazy change. We've, you know, printed lots of money to support people 
Um, I think there was already talk of potential recession before like this war kicked off, right? Now with oil prices going up, that's going to hit, you know, inflate. Can you imagine what the inflation numbers are going to be when oh my you know, in three months right. time, whatever yeah. that is, it's going to be insane. Obviously there's real logic behind why that is. And people are going to expect it already. Is there, I mean, obviously look, the, the war is the war does 10 out of 10 terrible, right? Like, but this is going to impact everyone in different ways. So domestically, even if we're looking at it in the US, do you think we're at a much higher, we've got more likelihood of g g slipping into recession in the next year? Oh, there's no question. I mean, again, even listen, the economists get it wrong, right? The economists joke is that, uh, you know, economist XYZ predicted a 12 of the last seven recessions. That's always the joke. So, you know, me going in and be like, oh yeah, for there'll be a recession, not right economic eventually. advice. Yeah. What I mean, what would you think? What does your gut tell you is going to happen based on everything we just talked about? Yeah, things yeah. aren't looking good. How could it not be, right? Yeah. And and to your point, like Blah, you talked about, is like there's a 10 out of 10 awful, which is the war itself. The, the the other 10 out of 10 awful is the countries that have no that are have food insecurity, right? So we're talking about African and Middle Eastern nations, maybe even some those are the primarily the wheat uh, uh, areas of the world or that consume a lot of wheat, maybe Middle East more. Um, but yeah, we're talking, there's going to be some real hardships in that area because of what's going on in, in with wheat and grain in Ukraine, uh, Russia. Crazy, man. Yeah, it's just not looking good, man. <laughs> um, obviously, yeah, like I said, the war itself is obviously the, the biggest worry and that escalating. Obviously, the people that are already going through a terrible time there um very touchy in every way so um yeah anything else on that boys before we wrap up this because we do want to come to talking of war um Trunga's talk has just published his first piece in bloomberg and uh we're going to be talking about crypto native war bonds which is a really interesting idea so anything else before we move on to that boys i'm ready let's do, do it. it yeah All right. let's do it guys okay so, so i'll tee you up trunk yeah, so me up below. you just published i think today right when we we're recording this on tuesday uh late afternoon um and you just published your first piece in bloomberg um opinion is that right is, is it bloomberg opinion? that's right bloomberg opinion so not the reporting side but just uh the opinion piece um uh, so do you stick it on to not being a journalist title yeah. right? so, <laughs> exactly <laughs> i, I want to make that very that. clear I want to emphasize the opinion part, but uh, yeah. blah, you had a chance to read it, so I love to. Just, yeah, I like, did. Yeah, so your what, thoughts why on you it? Tell people on like first of all, what are war bonds? Because we'll come to the crypto part second. Okay. But like people don't know that there have been war bonds in the past. A lot of people will know what a bond is in general, but maybe yeah. let's just start with that and then okay. specifically for war bonds. Perfect. Okay, so a bond is a financial instrument. Uh, you give the bond issuer, let's say the bond is for hundred dollars. They promise you in return, it's a fixed income asset. So they promise you a fixed return. They promise you like, hey, I'll pay you 10% uh, for the next year. So that is a bond that is a de debt instrument. So war bonds <clears throat> are bonds during wartime. Uh, in World War I, the US issued a liberty bond. And the point of issuing these bonds is to get basically the domestic citizens to finance your war efforts. So the government, and, and you know, the government in general, the US Treasury is the highest credit out there. Uh, you know, we always joke about the fiat and the money printing, but still today, the US government has the highest credit in the world uh, or up there. 
And so if you're going to give money uh, for savings and it's wartime, it's World War I, say it's 1917, and your government's like, hey, we will issue a war bond with a uh, 3% interest rate. You know, if you're feeling patriotic or you have a moral distaste for the German Kaiser, you may give money to the U.S. government to fight uh, the German Kaiser, which is basically what happened. Uh, the thing I will note about these war bonds in the, in the uh, World War One was they, would, they did not have interest uh, on them. What they were, they sold at a discount to the face value. So what that means is uh, if it's a $100 bond, uh, you were buying it for $90 uh, essentially, right? So there is an implied interest rate. But uh, effectively, you weren't getting interest rate. You're buying at a discount. So when it matured, uh, I think these are a little bit longer. These were probably 10 years. You would have made money on it. But the interesting and, and thing Trump, about- can I just start just really quickly yeah. just to, <clears throat> to clarify that? So th this is an alternative to other regular bonds that are already out there, right? And yeah, normally, the, you can split exactly. it up into regular people can buy bonds, but also a lot of institutional money will buy right. bonds. So well, just a, a, well, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask specifically, in this case, like it's let's say U.S. wanted to issue this, right? And they say, okay, we want to, you know, basically sell these bonds, and people can buy these bonds and get 10, 11 percent or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so in Ukraine's case, they actually just raised two hundred seventy-seven million on this war bond. They raised last Wednesday. They raised another two thirty today. So they've done oh, two wow. issuances for five hundred million. Got it. But and so that what's the alternative in that scenario? So for um. For a government like the U.S., why would they do a war bond versus just printing money and you know doing what they've been doing for the last like few years? Right. I I think today the money printing route would almost certainly be what would happen. But a hundred years ago, got, the, it, got the, it. Yeah, exactly. So raising money uh, for a war effort, uh, uh, the bond was the kind of the best instrument in 1917. And there, there are two things I basically want to kind of answer that you alluded to was what does the instrument, how different is the instrument versus a peacetime instrument, right? So what was a 1916 government bond like versus the 1917? So actually the, the interest rate, the implied interest rate on the war bond in, in World War I was lower than the market rate, which means that people were buying them out of like patriotic pride, right? And the government was taking advantage of that. Um, the other part of that being they, the government might offer a bond that's a much longer term than you might buy. They'll be like, hey, we need 20 years to pay it back because it's wartime. Uh, there is a risk and there is a, a uncertainty about when this thing's going to end. So not, World War II is interesting, actually, because the war bond that was sold in World War II, 84 million Americans bought it. So... I think, I don't know what the, that might be half the U.S. at the time bought the bond. So that's World War II, obviously, which is the greatest conflict that uh, we've ever had on this planet. So that just gives you an idea of like, the, th the three things I'd summarize with war bonds is this, is that it's a way to raise money for government. It's a way to, uh, for the, the citizens of a country or individuals that are, are, are supportive of, of one side of a fight to give money to that cause, right? There's a patriotism, there's a pride. And then the third part of it is like the terms of the bond itself uh, can be less uh, quote unquote profitable than uh, for an individual, uh, which suggests that they have other considerations other than just making money. So let's fast forward to Ukraine and what's going on with the uh, war bond situation in the Ukraine. So you guys, you guys were the ones that put me onto this because you're following it very closely. But uh, I'll share this screen here.
uh, when, uh, so the war happens, right? In uh, February 24th. This is And uh, this is the one that Jack sent me. <laughs> this is the one that Jack sent. So February 24th, uh, Russia brutally invades the Ukraine. Two days later, uh, we, we, we saw this in real time. The Ukraine government Twitter account says we're accepting crypto donations, right? And then uh, if you read the uh, quote tweets on that uh, tweet from them, it's wild. It's just like, we live in assimilation. We live in assimilation. The other one that came out was uh, that people were tweeting was... Uh, we're still early. Like if, if like government nations are raising money for war with crypto, it's just so early. Right. So what I wanted to show here was, so all these donations come in and to date, uh, the Ukraine government on Tuesday, March 8th has raised about over $60 million in crypto donations. So that's almost 10% of the war bonds they've done. So quickly on this chart was, on the, I believe it's March or February 28th, they said they were going to do an airdrop to any of the ETH donators, the donors. And then this Dune Analytics uh, uh, a chart shows how quickly the donation shot up. You guys remember that, right? So actually, let me first ask you guys. So just to tell everybody where we're at, Ukraine government has raised 500 mil in traditional bonds, war bonds. Uh, that, that one is an 11% coupon with a one-year maturity. They also have crypto donations. So when you guys saw the crypto donations, what were your first thoughts? Uh, I think the speed at which you can collect capital internationally is like a huge part of that. Um, I think it was on the weekend too, right? I think they right. announced it on the weekend. So any like set of traditional financial institutions working together to move money from individuals would have been a lot slower than just collecting from a crypto wallet. But the concept, like this is a different concept than a bond being a donation specifically. Um, and then the airdrop thing, honestly, just completely like caught me off guard. Like what? Like it just right. doesn't feel, doesn't feel like the time or the thing to suggest yeah. or like, should you guys really be spending your resources on like figuring out how to, I mean, in some ways I like respect the incentive design, right? Well, Jack, what is it? What happened when they announced the airdrop? So per the chart, if you're listening, you didn't see it, but like very similar to the, the, the Nickelback graphic from the beginning of the episode, the right-hand side has this enormous, you know, probably 10x, um, 10x increase in donations over a really short period of time after they announced this incentive. And this is kind of the, the shorthand term would be the degenerate behavior of the crypto community, right? It's like right. chasing yield and like, oh, maybe this thing that I get back is going to be, um, is going to be worth more than what I contributed. And and I think a bunch of the donations were like the absolute minimum. Someone pays gas yeah, it was a just micro so they donation. can qualify for whatever it is they get on the back end exactly. of this thing. And I think that's honestly a lot of what's wrong with the market and a lot of what creates a, a lot of, um, you know, uh, just let's just call it FUD overall is just like yeah. the, like the utility of this technology is really profound, but because so much of the behavior with it is associated with like short-term thinking, gambling, the day trading. Yeah. That, like that, that behavior seeps in and credit to anybody that can like 
take advantage of that in a positive way, right? Like there's very few examples that can. Um, we've seen great examples of airdrops, airdrops of projects that have utility that then like deliver some amount of ownership and governance back to their community, the users of their platform, whatever else. In this case, um, I, I really don't understand what goes through someone's mind that was, you know, on the fence about donating before and then right. post airdrop, you think this thing is going to be valuable because, you know, even if I look at this completely objectively and clinically, those, whatever it is that's being airdropped, if anybody can qualify for it, then it doesn't have any, like, it's not going to have some like exponential value creation on the back end either, right? Well, Jack, can you uh, talk about what could potentially be airdrop? Because this is what the nature of the article is. You would know better. Mario Gabriel, our friend of the journalist, uh, offered two ideas. He offered a token or an NFT. So could you explain to the listeners, if you had donated uh, Ethereum to the Ukrainian government, now you may receive something in your uh, Ethereum wallet, right? So what could that be? Yeah, so Mario explained it perfectly and you could read the article that Trung wrote to to get it in proper detail but yeah the two options would be non-fungible tokens or fungible tokens a non-fungible token might be like a collaboration that do with an artist or a series of artists that you know you have a piece of artwork that memorializes the fact that you made a donation which you know i'm not knocking that i've done that i think it's a great idea and then launching a token which i believe mario went into a bit more detail on which would be a far more complex legal right. uh exercise which you know you would have to figure out who keeps what what it's worth like how is the value like split up among the speculators and the issuers and all of those things and figuring all of that out while you're in the middle of like defending your yeah. country seems like a tall ask um but the nft side of it could have been interesting again it just feels like tonally there were there were so many people like taking part in this without um without it needing to be an official um government narrative right like them providing the addresses was kind of enough to spin up right. a lot of communities to contribute and i do think obviously anything coming from them officially is going to create more participation i haven't really spent enough time to process it but it for whatever reason like my initial reaction to it is just like it just doesn't something just doesn't feel right uh it doesn't feel right about it or it's just like it because it's like like not a native community thing it feels like um if done thoughtfully it could have been a really great way to build like long term contribution and engagement with the cause um but i don't have like they raise a lot more money because of it, right? Um, and I think maybe you make an exception for the like the the reason in which the money was raised. If it was raised in a different context and someone said donate money here and you're going to get something in return, and then they like, hey, we're not giving anybody anything in return because of the nature of the cause. If you're upset about it, then yeah, honestly, you, you probably you need to reevaluate. <laughs> um, but. In, in a commercial context, that wouldn't play, right? Well, play. let me just answer quickly what uh, the token side could be. I know Bilal had a question. I just want to give Mario's point quickly. He's like, two uh, potential token mechanics could be, you know, you work with the tourism agency 
I know it sounds insane at the time, but if you could spin it up quickly, it's like, you know, if you contribute, you will have X credits uh, to come back in the future once we rebuild the country. You know, that that's a kind of an incentive. Uh, the other one is, uh, you know, maybe you could uh, have a portion of future reconstruction projects. And, you know, he uh, Mario admits, like, this sounds, it could be extremely dystopian. But the whole point of why we brought it up was, uh, I explained about the war bonds previously. It's a way to give a government money during time of war. And and those monies will be going to arms, right? And at the time, 100 years ago, people expected interest back. But this is crypto native. Uh, we've discussed many times on this, not investment advice. There are hundreds of, there are billions, billions, tens of billions of dollars of crypto native money sitting in ETH wallets that want to do crypto native things, right? And uh, just as an example, Gavin Wood from Polkadot, uh, one of the, uh, one of the other cryptos gave $5 million worth of Polkadot, right? Uh, somebody literally gave a $200,000 crypto punk uh, to the wallet of the Ukrainian government. So like crypto native money wants interacting with the world in crypto native ways. This is not a bond per se, but it is a crypto equivalent of what a war bond might be, right? The government is giving something back to the individual in exchange for uh, money up front. Uh, there's, uh, I'll talk to more reasons why this is better than existing systems. Cause it's the Bilal Zaidi point, right? It's like, why crypto? It's like, why do we need crypto? So we could talk through those, but Bilal, if you had yeah. a question. No, no, I think you guys described it perfectly well. I'm going to share this one tweet that I think it's just the vice president of Ukraine, potentially. This oh yeah, dude, that's literally, I have that teed up with Kobe on the bottom. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, <laughs> So sorry, just to see his title, Vice Prime Minister yeah. of Ukraine, Crazy. Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine, right? So he's not some random, you know, random minister. Like this guy is heavily involved. Um, and he, and this was the tweet. I shared this in the Telegram group as well, saying 2022 is wild. <laughs> and he said, after careful consideration, we decided to cancel the airdrop. Every day, there are more and more people willing to help Ukraine to fight back the aggression. Instead, we will announce NFTs to support Ukraine armed forces soon. We do not have any plans to issue any fungible tokens, right? Go to the so, first comment. Go to the first comment. Yeah, I saw that. Kobe said this is the best rug ever. So, <laughs> look, I mean, the the reason I shared it was just because look, we t we've been talking about this, all that language, right? NFTs fungible tokens airdrop like this is stuff we're all used to hearing but trying to explain that to your parents or you know just like a, a normie as people would say in the crypto world that that doesn't make any sense to most people right oh and, my god yeah and to see someone at that level while there's the biggest war going on in recent times or the most high profile for the reasons we discussed last week just felt kind of crazy to me and again for all the things uh you both said there in one way, you have to say, okay, these are the rules of the current game. This is how the world is working. They see a pool of money there that's going to help them fight and, um, you know, support people in need. So on that side, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, that makes sense. But just to see that in writing felt, felt kind of weird to me. And um, it comes back to the, the episode we did on philanthropy and NFTs and crypto. And, and if you haven't heard that episode, you should listen to that. I think it's um, kind of like an evergreen thing that is still relevant today. Um, it all comes back to that balance of incentives and the intent and what you kind of want to, what, what you're optimizing for. Because, like, you know, obviously I worked in charity for a few years and I was always having this conflict with what's the best way to raise money and help the most people with 
you know, in an idealistic world, this problem wouldn't exist in the first place and everyone should give for pure reasons and not want anything Mm. back. And that was actually something the the founder of Chariot Water, who I work with closely, Scott, he was very adamant that we would never really like auction stuff off, for example. Like, you know, like, hey, go and hang out with Will Smith. Though they did actually do that a long time ago. (laughs) And they eventually, uh, you know, like stopped doing that because he wanted it to be about giving for giving's sake and not wanting something in return. And that there's pros and cons to that. The con is it limits who wants to give money. It's the reason why philanthropy, the numbers are dwarfed by investments and purchasing and all those sort of things. Right. So, um, so in a way, the summary is, I think it's really interesting that they were even prioritizing something like this in a time of absolute emergency. Um, but I do think, you know, without judging too much, like the people that were on the end of that graph that where they where they saw the Rugged. incentive were like, all right, let's put ten dollars worth and pay a hundred dollars in gas to one day get an NFT. Right. Like I can't judge because I don't know like every person's intent, but that seems a little off to me. You know, well, blah, like, I just have a question. Is uh did while well, you're a charity water, did uh the charity water have to do with anything during uh, a wartime conflict? I know there's a lot of Middle Eastern conflicts at a time. It's like, yeah, and how would you have handled? Sure. How would I'm you have? Pre- how do you think you would have handled this Ukraine-Russia situation in the sense of like what would have come to Charity Water with it? Yeah, I think that the Charity Water wasn't really an emergency because there's different types of relief, and this they were right. weren't really emergency relief, and it's like a different type of kind of organization because the type of people and the roles you're hiring for, like like the the head of his name is Christoph, he's the chief water officer. His previous role was exactly this. They would go into emergency zones and like land, right. be the first people there and figure stuff out on the ground. So we didn't actually do that much in Chait War. There were regions, I'm sure, that eventually, like Ethiopia in recent times has had this massive civil war or whatever in Tigray. And Tigray was the biggest region and still probably is the biggest reason for Chait War. So I don't oh. actually know what's happening now, but as part of the criteria of picking places to work, they would actually, I think, not pick places in war because it's very difficult to do long-term planning when there's war going right. on. Which is so, Charity Water's point is to supply lo- like a water source for a community, right? Exactly, yeah. So if there's this much need, to 100%, that they would go to the top 10% of where it's going to be most sustainable, the most likely to actually succeed and and stay there for 20, 30 years, not just like, oh, it's being blown up tomorrow, which is really sad because obviously those people need help too, but ultimately you, you kind of have to prioritize. So, um, so, so yeah, to, to bring it back, that was just my kind of opinion on it overall, high level. But I do think what you described, Trung, is actually a really interesting idea. First of all, the historical piece, which I didn't actually know, and then the way you described it right at the end here, which was essentially stripping it down to what it is. You're giving an opportunity for people to support and they will get something in return like they have done for hundreds of years with bonds. Um, but in this case, there's all the benefits of crypto. There's the liquidity. There's the people with all this money exactly. sitting in, you know, in wallets that they are happy to support something like this. There's the 24-7 nature of it where you're not now waiting five days for that money to get Dude, into their exactly. wallet. Exactly. Right. Um, well, at the same uh, me, time, they have to liquidate it in some way because they're not paying totally. for you know tanks in Bitcoin. Probably. Well, I'll, I'll actually I'll actually talk through the uh, the three points that you mentioned. Like you said specifically, you, the what is at the end? What is the first principles of what's going on here? An individual is giving money to government to 
prosecute a war or a defense in exchange they get some future benefit. We've discussed tokens, we've discussed NFTs. But why is the medium crypto better? You, you touched on some of them right there, but I'll talk to the three main points that, uh, that I wrote out. So number one is accessibility, right? Of the 500 million in Ukrainian war bonds that were sold to the public over the over two issuance in the last week, what do you? How many do you think bought that on a Robinhood app? It's zero, right? Because to buy a war bond, the primary buyer of that is our institutional investors and banks. So if you wanted to get one, and people on Reddit were trying to buy it, there are Reddit threads of people trying to buy Ukrainian war bonds. You have to have a broker dealer, and then they have to get the debt instrument, and then then they have to basically sell it to you old school, right? So there's no easy way for an individual to get this Ukrainian war bond. So accessibility is one. Um, all you need is a wallet uh, to, to, to basically get the equivalent of the airdrop if, if they ever did it. Uh, one point about the airdrop, which Jack talked about, was the micro donations, the gaming of it. So to kind of get around the gaming where you prevent people from getting the minimum, you basically just have to say you have to contribute a minimum amount of money to, be, to get an airdrop, right? So that's one. The other one was censorship resistance, which we all know is a crypto selling point. But right now, if you were to go, okay, so you can't get the uh, Ukrainian war bond. What's next? You go to GoFundMe or Patreon. But guess what? With those two things, those crowdfunding sites, they're not allowed to fund military efforts, soldiers, or propaganda, uh, which sounds like basically what is being funded right now, right? So uh, GoFundMe, uh, Patreon specifically shut down at one of these uh, funding sites. Um, whereas obviously with crypto, you can use the funds anyways. To Bilal's point, uh, there is a the you're gonna have to exchange for fiat, but it sounds like the some of the arms dealers that the Ukrainian government is dealing with is happy to take the crypto and they themselves will take the volatility risk. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah. So there, so the the, the 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 Minister of Defense of Ukraine said that the crypto funds have been way easier to use than regular SWIFT bank transactions. That's it. Obviously, right. SWIFT is going through yeah. some things through. Uh, last thing is Jack's point, and I'd love to get Jack back on this. Actually, Bilal, too. This It's about the signaling of the charity portion, right? So in that charity episode that Bilal alluded to, there are mechanics to crypto donations and getting NFT, which seems to open up the avenue of potential donors, right? Because you get the NFT piece, you don't have to type up on the internet to say like, hey man, I, I donate $10,000. Obviously a big part of donating is to show the world you donate, right? But then also you don't want to do the gauche part where you're broadcasting it. So, I mean, Jack, you talked about this with the Afghanistan NFTs. Uh, Bilal, you know a lot about it with Charity Water, about how people donate a large part of it is they want the world to know, right? But you know, you, there's also like, how do I humble brag about it? And it seems like an NFT or a, an Ethereum donation where it's on the blockchain is a way to show you've done it without showing you've done it. I think we've talked about this, yeah, right? That makes sense. Yeah, the, I think the, the other component. The for it, yeah. Yeah. And I think the other component is the um, just the the record of it, like the. Right you're you're in a incredibly significant moment of history and this kind of marks your contribution to a cause or to you know defending something that you believe in that is like native to the way that we all interact now and i the fascinating thing about all of this stuff is like even obviously like really um you know, any conflict at the beginning of the century 
the internet was like not even dreamt up at that point and the ability to get 86 million people to like buy a war bond in the 40s to me yeah. is just like how on oh, earth did that get right? pulled off oh, it's just, Hood app. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what did they what did they even do like it was was that like uh yeah i have no idea of the media landscape then like newspapers coupons something probably well the um, uh, the biggest actress at the time betty davis just give an example she was like the face of the program like you go to theaters she had all these videos about you know buying war bonds to support the cause but to your point right is like i guess the contra being there's no internet but there is like centralized yeah, sources. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. CBS, and i think that NBC, makes it much ABC. easier honestly like like the ability to like control the narrative at that level um is is obviously allows you to simplify the message a lot um yeah but i think the i think the nft angle at least makes a lot more sense than a token of some sort because that uh, the to the sorry the fungible token is like a Man, I, I I just going down this like comparison of like what is a project and a company and a commercial venture and a state, right? Essentially, right. if you really want to go to like first principles, they're defending some economic value of some description, right? And whoever, um, I think I sent you guys an article. I have to link it in the show notes. It's like war is a destructive force. It's a net negative, no matter how you spin it value is being destroyed right right like that is just a absolutely completely dumb way to go about making progress as we all know and agree and the idea of a financial instrument being attached to that with the expectation of a return just feels a little right. off because off. it's just not it's just not a like this is not you investing in shopify and hoping that they grow to 300,000 stores by the end of the quarter or whatever it is that they're doing is just um, but a commemoration. A trunk, I could see his face on shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, I, uh, well, dude, well, for the listeners, Jack, uh, let's just say what happened to Shopify in the last month. <laughs> no, I'm joking. You got clapped. Yeah, That's all. Shit yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jack, but. No, it's all good. Point, yeah. I, I think um, like if you think about the one thing that popped into my mind is like, imagine having your like contribution etched into stone at the end of a conflict. Like this was, you know, made possible. Like these are people that made any kind of sacrifice and even a small yeah. financial sacrifice has an impact. Um, and this is like a way to do that transparently native to the way people are communi exactly. communicating about the, the, the thing as it's going on. So, yeah, like at the same time, like wasn't we've talked about how it was not maybe perfectly executed, but it is a insane like stage in the adoption of crypto and the normalization right. of NFTs and tokens and all this stuff. I sent a tweet in the group chat just before this where I think it was the format was great. It said 2017, everything needs to be a, everything needs a token. 2018, nothing needs a token. 2019, everything needs a token. This kind of oscillates between these ideas. And I like, as with all things, like that's removing way too much nuance to be a useful description, but it's um, interesting to see what was, you know, worthy of a project of tokenization four years ago, which is like a computer game or, a, you know, some internet project oh, yeah, with great, like cartoon great. pictures. And now we're talking about like global 
conflicts between uh, nations and this technology is like being trialed in those circumstances is a signal for maturity, whichever way you slice it, I think. Jack, now that you actually, now that you kind of uh, explain, uh, you know, you having been a person that made now two different NFTs uh, for relief, Afghanistan uh, raised over 150,000 now, 250 at the time, 50,000 plus for Ukraine. I think the NFT thing sounds like a lot more, right? Like you even said it. It's like the token one gets a little bit tricky. The NFT is much cleaner, much simpler. You just get dropped that. You have it. Uh, it's memorialized. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to add, um, just to zoom out of the because of our crypto bubble and we're used to all these things, there's the flip side, which is the negative you know, connotations that come with anything crypto and NFTs. Yeah. I mean, actually, NFTs specifically... I feel like the word crypto has been around for in popular consciousness for longer than NFTs for sure. And anytime we talked about this a few episodes ago, Reese Weatherspoon posts she's doing some NFT thing and you just read the comments and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. Don't join that but evil side, like that sort of stuff. Um, so there, there is the flip side of like the branding or the meme, if you want to call it, of what all these things represent. So... For example, if if this wasn't called a crypto native war bond and it was Biden coming out and saying, we're offering a war bond like we did in 1917 and they didn't even mention crypto, but they they ended up, it ended up being on the blockchain or ended up being a website that people just donated money into. I feel like for most people, including boomers, obviously, they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm patriotic, I'm going to help. But just by using the word crypto, it kind of alienates a whole group of society. Branding, and right? It's pure exactly, branding. Exactly, it comes back. And, and right. that, on the flip side, it also means people with, you know, monkey GIF money or GIF money, <laughs> uh, JPEG money are going to be like, all right, here's a couple ETH because I'm happy to support something that is in my world. So th- there's, maybe you need to have both, you know, you need like mm. the equivalent of the normal original war bond if you're, if you're going down that route. Totally. It's yeah, a messaging I, I, thing. Out. This is not directly related, but it's kind of me reflecting on my response to the, um, you know, the question about Bitcoin earlier in the podcast. And I think with like the more I think about it, it's this is an incredible test of like in contrast to a state currency that can literally go close to zero overnight based on decisions that you didn't make. And we talked about this in the last uh, episode of the podcast. And it's like the fact that volatility is the price of admission, obviously, right? We know that, but the ramifications of having a global currency or like a currency that is liquid for almost everyone on earth at like a value that is agreed upon by the network that is definitely affected by politics and conflict and things of that nature, but not in the same way that, you know, this person issued it. And I hate to say this because these are, you know, these are my own bags here. Like yeah. the, a, a central figure that represents a technology or a currency or a state is there's key man risk in that situation versus, you know, the mythical Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, like there is still a, a real significant hedge there, right? Like the, even beyond gold in a lot of circumstances, because this is, 
in, this is like a network that you can't knock out. Um, I think gold has the historical, like the Lindy historical value narrative, but at the same time, redemption, transaction, moving money. Like if Ukraine yeah. was like, hey, donate gold to our war efforts. It's a dumb rock. It's Forget a dumb it, rock is what right? Seller says, right? Um, and I, I, like, I think all of this is proving like the whole derivative financial system and like all of this like fuckery that's been going on, financial engineering, like this thing doesn't actually represent the thing. It's a certificate that is an abstraction of a certificate of a spreadsheet is like in times of true conflict it's like it just goes Zero, yeah just goes to the floor right and i think the fact that these these digital currencies you know touch wood right now like they have been impacted in the same way that a lot of other um entities have been impacted but if you zoom out like the risk associated with them is is very different based on who can impact the price, right? Decisions, things that are said are um, way less impactful than something that is so tightly tied to the decisions of a single person or a small group of people. Right. Uh, so again, can't predict anything, but it's an interesting thing to look at in like the craziest period of time that we've experienced. Like, I think I've experienced... Um, in my adult life, obviously, there's been crazy shit going on for... There's always something... The last two weeks has been absolutely outrageous. Nuts going on. Absolutely outrageous. But if, when you add all of that together with, like, the way we consume media now and the yeah. way, like, the way the story, like, plays... Well, also, is, after uh, two years of an unprecedented yeah. uh, global you pandemic... forget about that, well. too. Yeah. I forget about that. The layers on that, top. That as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're oh, going a little bit sailor there towards yeah. the end, but there's, there's, you know, there's the truth is it's so different. Like it's just hard to make comparisons and it's hard to like take seriously every point of view because it's like, there's no precedent for it. And that's true of, you know, this circumstance, there's no precedent for the circumstance either. So who knows, yeah. man? Um, thanks for that, Jack. Trung, was there anything else on your on your wrap up? Because I know you kind of mentioned the three things there, which I think were yeah, that was a main that was a main one. censorship, resistance, and signaling. and the signaling. Yeah. So thank you to Mario and Jack for contributing. Let me stealing your ideas and pawning it off as my own on Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, also congrats on uh yeah a new so what's going on? Yeah, with we love to so, see it. Uh, we love to see it. Hey, it's congrats, uh, it's uh, we've been joking about it on NIA, right? You know. You tease it out low CMEC, but we're getting we're getting in the mainstream. But we're keeping we're keeping feet in both worlds, boys. Keeping feet in both worlds. New media, old media, all media. That's NIA, right? That's it. Not That's media it. advice. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, all right, boys. Should we wrap that part up? I mean, if we've got another five minutes, we could. Yeah, I got five. Something. If you guys want to do this Batman stuff, yeah, let's talk about it. So, look, as we said last week, and you know, we're in a really serious time right now, uh, but. We wanted to round it off with uh, something a little bit different, which is Batman. So our very own history professor, Fan, is going to talk through a little bit about how Batman... Well, have have either of you guys watched the new Batman or intend to? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. I, I will. I will do. Yeah. Oh, you will. I, I, I'm hearing very good things, right? I mean, the last few have been incredible, man. I mean, right. This is a new one. So, so this is no longer Christopher Nolan. But something interesting has happened with Batman, if you guys remember. So... So do you guys remember Batman, like the original one, Adam West? 
and like all the jokes about uh, him and him and Robin. Well, let me pull I it. Don't, up. I don't know if I like that. Isn't it got like yeah, the, like the yeah, bam, yeah. like with the graphic. Okay, so I want to run through a quick history of Batman because it's actually fascinating what's happened with Batman in 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 films and. Uh, it, there's a lot of laughs about Batman in the nineties, right? I'm sure we're going to have some good laughs here, but if you guys remember this, so these are like the most prominent Batman actors. So here we have Adam. So for the listeners, there's a, there's a grid here of five prominent Batman actors. And then uh, uh, the person who played it. So we have Adam West from the 1960s, Michael Keaton from the late eighties. Uh, and then the nineties, you had Val Kilmer and George Clooney, play Batman. Clooney, man. That, how yeah. many did he do? One or two? One, just did one. And then obviously the legend, no question about it, is Christian Bale, greatest King. Batman ever. Incredible. But then, so just came out was the new Batman movie. It had, uh, it did 130 million opening weekend. It's the biggest opening uh, during the post-pandemic uh, other than Spider-Man. But here is the joke that's happening. is Robert Pattinson uh, looking like emo Batman. <laughs> so, so people are joking about uh, Robert Pattinson uh, do you guys remember the movie Wedding Crashers? Yeah. You guys remember that. Vince yeah, Vaughn, yeah, uh, like Owen Wilson? Times. So if yeah. you guys remember in that movie, there's uh, one of the kids is super emo. And uh, the people oh, are yeah, saying yeah. that... Uh, Tommy Robert Sticks. Pa- yeah, Tommy Sticks. So they're joking that uh, Robert Pattinson is basically the uh, Tommy Sticks from Wedding Crashers, right? The dude just like super emo. And, and he plays a part. So... What I want to do is I want to walk through quickly the different Batman iterations. We talked about the characters, but let's get let's kind of like roll into them individually. So Jack alluded to it, but in the 1960s, you had Adam West looking the most clownish version of Batman ever, right? This is the one where they had the loud sound effects on TV, like Kablow and Bambo. And then Robin had the famous line, like, you know, holy cow, Batman. You guys remember that shit? So um, that was the 1960s. So Batman was written originally as both a very serious character because obviously he became a hero because his father was killed or his parents were killed right so there's a vigilante justice uh, orphan kid but the other part of it that kind of goes back to the the 60s and the original writing was like this robin character this clown ass robin character was always a comedic relief right i mean look at this guy hold on let's look at this guy again how could this not be comedic relief <laughs> look at robin what a clown but anyways 1989, uh, Tim Burton does a version of Batman. It's it's not as clowny. It's a little bit more dark. It's a bit more gothic. So Tim Burton did Edward Scissorhands and The Nightmare Before Christmas. So that's kind of a shtick. So there's Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Uh, so a little bit darker version of Batman. But this is where it gets weird. So they did a sequel, uh, Batman Returns, still pretty dark. Uh, that was also with uh, Tim Burton. But in 1995, you guys remember this one? Oh, yeah. Batman Forever? Jim Carrey. Yeah, Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, Jim Carrey. This. You guys remember this one, right? So this is where it gets weird. So they had done the two Batmans in 89 and I think 91. So in 95, they come back. And as we all know now with superhero movies, so this is way before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they just had to start adding characters, right? Because by the third movie, they've already done Penguin. They've already done Catwoman. They've already done Joker. Like, what character are we going to do? So they throw in Riddler and Tommy Lee Jones as uh, as Two-Face. But then, as I alluded to earlier, the clown-ass Robin makes a return. So they bring back Robin, and this is what happens. They brought back Robin for Batman Forever. And then the next movie, 97, was called Batman and Robin. You guys will definitely remember this one. The This is like 
This movie got completely panned because of uh, the nipple suits. Look at the nipples here. You guys remember that? <laughs> yeah. Dude, it must no. have been a cold day. Yeah, Batman hasn't been... got one though. Yeah, Batman. Bat- well, he, the other suit has him. So here's George Clooney that as Batman. With Batman is so funny, man. dude. How oh, crazy Batman is that, is right? So funny. So basically, what happened was they went full clown suit, uh, and Batman wasn't even the main draw. The highest paid person for Batman and Robin was Arnold as Mr. Freeze. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Hold on a second. I want to play something for you guys. Do you guys remember Arnold as Mr. Freeze? I don't even know if I've seen this Batman. Dude, okay, I'm about to play a 30-second clip. Every single uh, line he has in the movie, he was paid $30 million for this movie, is a pun. So here's a 30-second clip. For the listeners, you can just hear Arnold saying puns. Here we go. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. Allow me to break the ice. <laughs> His face is ridiculous. <laughs> Bro, that is a, what killed the dinosaur of the Ice Age. So this clown ass movie gets completely, uh, completely destroyed by uh, reviews. Uh, a little bit of a box office flop. So basically, that's '97. There's no more Batman. The Batman franchise is done. Because of Batman and Robin, Christopher Nolan takes another shot at it. And then obviously we will all know what he did. But what happened with Christopher Nolan is... Hey, Trunk. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you, mate. The Batman IP, is there an author that wrote Batman? I know nothing about it. Yes, there is. Is adapted from a single book? A comic comic book. Ah, okay. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, no. So yeah, there's the original IP. And uh, I'll just talk about Christopher Nolan's version first. So timeline... 97 was Batman and Robin, that clown-ass nipple suit and Mr. Freeze that we just saw. Uh, What happened between 1997 and 2005? The invasion of the Iraq War, 9-11. Much darker atmosphere in America, right? The 90s, remember, were kind of like the rah-rah times, end of the Cold War. So Christopher Nolan comes in with a much darker interpretation of Batman. And then obviously I'm sure you got, I mean, Dark Knight is one of the greatest movies ever. Great film. Mate. It's just unbelievable. Right. And then the last one is not as good. It's a little bit crazy, but that's basically what happened with Batman. So the sixties, it was a cartoon, like comedy was the angle. 1989 is more Gothic. And then the mid nineties, it turned into a clown show because they brought the Robin character back in and his character was always car- uh, com- comedic relief. And then it, it tanked the series so badly, they didn't do anything for eight years. And then Christopher Nolan, thank God Christopher Nolan comes in and then creates literally the greatest, I mean, Dark Knight. Some of the of best films of all time, man. Oh, yeah. Dark Knight I think, Rises. Actually, let me... Even Joker. I think Joker is... Oh, my God, dude. It's so good. It's so, His so good. His Joker character, uh, I mean, they sadly, they say that Heath Ledger, part of it, he became so dark like to do the role, right? Uh, unfortunately, we all know what ha- uh, Heath Ledger passed away, but yeah, dude, to your point, Bilal, about what some of the greatest movies ever, and I know that IMDb is not the be all and end all, but uh, check this out look at the rankings for the wow. greatest movies ever. That's so, pretty, yeah, pretty impressive, man. For the listeners, the top 10 IMDb uh, uh, viewership. So this is not the critics, but who cares about the critics? The critics can kick rocks. Number one is Shawshank Redemption. Number two is The Godfather. Number three is The Dark Knight. So there you go. Insane. It's up there, man. It's definitely up there. I will but, uh, say, uh, Trung, if you finish, I'll share my favorite 
yes Batman please do robin combo of all time is uh for our listeners. <laughs> wait what is what is this wait, wait, what is wait, this wait, wait. <laughs> this is the show we've referenced a few times called only falls on horses which is probably oh the best goodness. like i mean the most classic like british comedy of all time i mean uh oh sorry wrong uh wrong thing here one second you're gonna see our notes there but um and uh you can see here i don't know if you guys can see but um this is one of the best scene look at how old this is 1996 <laughs> anyway so for any any fans of that show you'll remember that i think that was like a christmas special there's a lot of good memories there uh jack i'm assuming you would have watched christmas specials as well but every christmas we i think like more than half the country would watch this show it was like 40 million people or something would be watching it oh man incredible Wait, what, is, and what, what like what is the american equivalent of that oh, movie? i don't it's not even a movie it's a tv show um so i don't i don't think there is one i i don't know if i have you got any jack that you'd recommend uh, would compare it to i mean why you're thinking that the background of the show is these two brothers who i just showed they're kind of like market traders they're like these cockney market traders and every every few episodes they'll say this time next year we'll be millionaires and the, <laughs> the whole show is about them in the pursuit trying to become of millionaires becoming, yeah they're like wheeler dealer types so uh, like selling yeah. stuff off the back of a truck or yeah. you know like doing but the this, pitch in the car park it's it's a great it's so show. good oh i my can't goodness. think of anything remotely close but if somebody has a suggestion tee it up in the comments i've, I've seen in the telegram group a few people have referenced it before and shared, shared we got the uh, british cats right yeah yeah, yeah. They oh they'll it. appreciate this batman piece and that's good <laughs> that uh, we were able to knock it in there um any uh, just to wrap it up what was your favorite batman boys out uh, the real answer oh, dark knight no question bill christian was bill it, was it dark knight and dark knight rises or is that two, there's two batman, different films, batman right? begins the dark knight dark knight rises batman begins is good though yeah batman begins was good too yeah i don't know i i'd have to watch them both again to, yeah. to make a decision but nolan amazing yeah, well, it sounds like uh, Matt Reeves has done uh, justice with, uh, although this new Batman movie with uh, Robert Pattinson is three hours long. So, eighty-six oh, percent Rotten Tomatoes. I'm looking at it right now. Okay, they're Bollywood not bad. Five, eh? Three hours, Jesus Christ! I like All the. Right, they did some amazing. Um, man, I don't know. Let me just see if I can pull this up quickly. Did problem. amazing out of home advertising. For oh, this. for Batman. Yeah, uh, I probably can't find it in time. But wait, hold on a second. Um, Let's do out of home Batman. It's like, oh, I found it. I found it. Yeah. Check this out. Beautiful. We need the ad breakdown. Yeah, dude. Jack. Walk. Uh, there, did you see that? So I was searching through the internet for the new Batman. Not just the visual. Oh, wow. Damn. Wait, is that's that insane. that's Dark Knight Rises or the new That one? has to be an old one, right? I just saw it. Someone posted it, but I assumed it was for the uh, the new Yo, one. Yo, that is really for, uh, for people listening. Yeah, so it's like a out of home billboard, the thing that you'd see like on the side of a big uh, motorway in the state. And um, the bat signal has kind of been like smashed through and it's like gnarled up all the edges of the billboard. And you can see all of the like back of the billboard. It looks like it's actually been Unreal, destroyed right? by something flying through it. It's really cool. Oh, I see. It. Oh, this one got mad. Uh, 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 here we go. This is a month ago, right? This is Dark Knight Rises. Okay, yeah, sick. Design porn. I have to get on that uh, that little Reddit trunk. There's some uh, there's some stuff Reddit for gold. you to troll through. Yeah. Oh yeah, sir. 
Uh, amazing. <laughs> All right, boys. I think we can wrap it now. Anything else before we call it? No, that was great. And uh, Bilal's back in the United States next week. Um, and uh, don't worry, people. We're still plotting away at the at the next things. But, you know, everything is very, very with us. It's play by play. We want to make sure it's directly going to hit the bullseye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. No man. doubt. All right. Well, again, thanks for listening. I hope you made it all the way here. If you did, let us know in the comments. And um, yeah, thanks again for your support. Keep spreading the word with all your friends. We've got lots of people listening on the audio side, spreading. We saw a big jump on Spotify. I don't know if you guys saw that. I sent, sent a little yeah. to you guys. From a nice um, thread from, uh, I believe it was John Frank. I can't remember. Those who, but viral thank you. Twitter threads. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so yeah, keep spreading because that's the only way we get this out to more people. we got we got to start saying this at the start below. That's true, yes. For the, for the 12 <laughs> people left here now at the end. <laughs> thank uh, you. We though. appreciate all the support. We appreciate and, it. Uh, we will see you on the next one. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.